Well, good morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. Uh, we just finished last Sunday, of course, our sermon series called Then What? Uh, and uh, it really was a sermon about what happens after you take your last breath. You, you breathe your last breath, then what? And so that's online if you'd like to listen to that. If you didn't get to watch it all or be here, uh, that's online. Next week, I'm starting a brand new series. Uh, next, I'm really excited about the series. Next week, the series will be called Overwhelmed, Learning to Let Go of Anxiety. We live in very anxious times, don't we? There's a lot to be anxious about. And every time you turn on the news or read something on the internet, there's more and more things to be anxious about. So for the next four weeks, starting next Sunday, for the next four weeks, we're looking at how the Bible can help us deal with the anxiety that tends to creep into our lives. Now, I'm telling you that, I'm telling you about that series for two reasons. One is, I want you to pray for me. I know some of you are really, truly prayer partners with your pastor, and you pray for me on a regular basis. So if you would, just add that to your prayer list, asking God to help me as I prepare those messages in that series. And the second reason I tell you that is not just to request your prayers, but I also tell you that so that you will invite people to come to join you in worship next Sunday and throughout this series. You likely know somebody that's struggling with anxiety. You likely have someone perhaps in your family or a personal friend or a co-worker and they're just stressed out and, and just anxious all the time, worried and afraid and all of those kind of things. So I encourage you to invite people to the new series starting next Sunday. Today, I want to preach a, a single message that I hope will be very personal, and very practical. The title of the message is, The Story of Grace. The title of the message is very important, The Story of Grace. It's one of the most powerful stories you find in the Bible. It's one of those stories in the Bible that once you read it, you don't forget it. It's one of those stories in the Bible that kind of pulls you into the scene and you're part of the story and, and it's an amazing story to read. But before we get to the story, I want to, you to say this word with me, the word grace. Would you say that word together? Let's say it together. One, two, three, say grace. You did that really good, but I'd like to ask you to say it one more time. Say the word with me. It is grace. There's something appealing about that word, isn't there? You just think about it for a moment. When, when you are talking about this word grace, there's something very appealing about that, especially if you're on the receiving end of grace. It's refreshing to our souls when we hear the word grace. And it is especially refreshing to our souls when we experience grace. Here's why. Grace is not something that is earned. Grace is something that is received. And it's given to those who least deserve it. The minute you start thinking that you deserve it, whatever that it is, you haven't received it. You have tried to earn it and it's no longer grace. Grace is something that is given to those who do not deserve it. Grace cannot be earned. So we're going to look at a story that describes and illustrates grace. Now back in August, we did look at the story of Rahab and when we're going through the book of Joshua. and We got to Joshua chapter 6 back in August and we talked about unexpected grace. The big idea behind that message was is that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And we talked about Rahab the harlot and how she lost her label 
and she lived among God's people. We talked about the fact that she became part of the lineage of King David and and eventually even part of the lineage of King Jesus. And she's a perfect illustration that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. But today we're going to look at a different aspect of grace. How do you reconcile the grace of God with the law of God? I want you to look at this for a moment. How do we reconcile the grace of God? with the law of God? Or, how does God offer me what I literally do not deserve? So today, as we look at this, I'm not going to teach the doctrine of grace. Today, I just want to tell you a story. It's the story of grace. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is the story of Jesus' willingness to forgive even in the face of sin. John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today as we look at this story of grace. And there's three things I want to point out to you as we work our way through the text. And so I just want to tell the story to you and just point out some things as we go through the story. And the first thing I want you to see in this story is the dilemma of grace. Let's read the story together, looking for the the dilemma of grace. Verses 1 through 5. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Let me pause there for a second and ask you to respond now. In this story, according to the verse we just read, where is Jesus? Read it again. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then at dawn, he went somewhere else. He went to the temple courts, and where the people gathered around him, he sat down to teach them. So Jesus, early in the morning, goes to the Mount of Olives, I think likely to pray. Then he leaves the Mount of Olives, and it's a short distance from the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem. And he went into Jerusalem to the temple grounds, to the temple courts. He's on the grounds of the temple court. He's there in the midst. Of, he's within, uh, a, you know, he can, everyone can see the temple, and he's on the temple grounds, the temple courts. And it's in that setting where Jesus sits down and he begins to teach. He often would teach sitting down. And as he's teaching the people, he gets interrupted. Look at the text. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Can you imagine how humiliating that was? Uh, Keep in mind, where is Jesus? He's on the temple grounds, in the temple courts. He's got a crowd of people around him. He's teaching them. And as he's teaching them, he's interrupted by these religious leaders who come dragging this woman who's been called in the very act of adultery. They drag her in front of the crowd. They humiliate her in front of the crowd. And they say, they announce, verse 4, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was called in the act of adultery. They announce it to Jesus as well as the whole crowd. Then this is the dilemma. Verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded, not suggested. In the law, Moses commanded 
us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Here is a woman caught in the act of adultery. Here is a woman standing in her shame. And here are these religious leaders declaring she is guilty and she is immoral. And the Jewish law said she should be stoned to death. Now that that sounds harsh to us today. I recognize that. But it was designed to safeguard the sanctity of sex. It was designed to safeguard the holiness of marriage. And it was designed to safeguard the moral purity of the nation. So the law did in fact declare that if someone was caught in adultery, they should be stoned to death. But what law specifically were they referring to in verse 5 when he says, In the law, Moses commanded, what law specifically were they referring to? Well, I can tell you. Uh, Don't try to find it. Let me just give you the reference. I'll read it for you as you write down the reference. There's two places in the law where this is mentioned. One is in Leviticus 20, verse 10. And here's what it says. And I want you to listen carefully. Because I want to ask you a question about what I read. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's one reference. Another reference of the law is in Deuteronomy 22.22. It says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil in Israel. Now, if you were listening or if you were reading that text, I've got a question for you. Who's missing from this story? The man. Because the law said that both the man and the woman should be stoned to death. The man was missing from the story likely because it was part of a scheme to frame Jesus. You see, in reality, these men were more interested in shaming this woman than in stoning her. They were most interested in stoning Jesus. They really weren't that interested in stoning her. They were trying to trap Him so that they could stone Him. That's what they really wanted. Look at verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Him. This woman was simply a pawn in the chess match they were playing. They didn't care about her. They didn't care about her sin. They were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to set him up. And so Jesus faces a very real dilemma. If he said that this woman should be stoned according to the law, that's what Moses said, so you go ahead and stone her. If he said that, of course, she would lose her life. And he would lose his reputation as a friend of sinners. And he came to this earth to die for those who live in sin. And so he faces a dilemma. The the other part of that equation is this. If he said she should be pardoned, then he would have been accused of breaking the law of Moses and condoning sin. So the story is a great illustration of the dilemma of grace. How can God offer grace to me without endorsing my sin. Now, I'll just say to you that I was a recipient of grace this week. Let me explain it to you so you understand this this dilemma. I can give you an illustration of this dilemma of grace. I personally was a recipient of grace this week. I was on Tuesday night, I was working here at church, and I brought Lisa with me, and I've got got an office 
I've got an, an office there, and then behind my office, I have a small study here on campus, and so I'm usually in my study, and so Lisa came with me on Tuesday night. I was in my study working on some stuff, and she was in my office, and she was working on her BSF lesson. By the way, that, that's what you do when you're a preacher. Those are the kind of romantic dates you have. It's like, hey, you want to go to church to study? You know, that's a really romantic kind of a thing to do, but that's what we do. Um, so anyway... I was in my study, she was in my office, we were working, and then I heard her say, Keith, my phone's not working. So, okay, I go into the, into the office, I get her phone, and, and sure enough, on the top of the screen, it said SIM card not record, or SIM card not something. There was some problem with the SIM card, so uh, I thought, well, I can fix this, and so I took it back into my study, she stayed in my office, I took it back in my study, and I was going to be the hero, I was going to fix her phone. And so I started taking out the SIM card, restarting the phone, all kinds of things. Uh, I, I Googled, when I couldn't figure it out, I Googled what are some other things I can do to fix this phone and get it working again, get the SIM card working again. And so I did all these kind of things. Uh, let me just pause in the story to say that for my wife, pictures are very, very important to her. Um, pictures of her family, pictures of, of us, pictures of her of our kids, pictures of our grandkids, things we do, the places we go. Like a lot of you, pictures are very important. Like a lot of you, her pictures are where? On her phone. And so I'm fixing her phone, and I'm pushing buttons, and I'm trying to do it. I, I pushed one too many buttons, and all of a sudden the phone started to say, factory reset in progress. Yeah, somebody understands what that means. <laughs> Factory reset in progress means we are erasing the phone to put it back to its original condition when you bought it. Now that sounds like kind of a good thing until you realize you're not just erasing the phone, you are erasing the pictures on the phone. All the pictures on the phone. And I was sitting in the study, she was in the office, I was sitting in the study going, no, 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 no. And then I had to go out to, I had to go out, well, first of all, I sat there for a while just looking at it, and I knew I got to confess, you know, I got to own up to it eventually, and, and so I went out, and I told her, and I said, but let, let's, let's, let's take it to Verizon and see what we can do, okay, you know, you're trying to paint it as good as I can. So guess where I was the next morning, as soon as Verizon opened, I was one of their first customers, and I told the guy, so listen, it's not reading the SIM card, and so I need you to take care of that for me. And um, I think I made matters worse. I think I deleted everything on her phone, including her pictures. Said, well, did she back it up to Google Drive? I said, I, I don't think so. She doesn't do that kind of thing. And uh, did, you, did you back it up to the iCloud? She doesn't do those kind of things. You know, trying to make it, put it off on her a little bit, you know. <laughs> it's not all my fault. She doesn't do all those kind of things. And, and so he said, okay, well, let's see what we can do. So he works with it. He puts a new SIM card in. After about 10 minutes or so, he gets the phone working. He hands it back to you. There you go. It's working great. I said, what about the pictures? And he put his head down, started shaking. He said, I'm sorry, man. You can blame it on me if, you, if it'll help you. <laughs> Just blame it on me if it'll help you. I said, but I've already confessed. I can't blame it on you. And he said, I'm sorry. I can't do anything. So... I go in the car, and I'm heading home, and I've got the phone, and, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? 
I could go live somewhere else. <laughs> no. So, so I go home and I, and I say I got good news and I got bad news. Good news is your phone's working. Bad news is your pictures are gone. Now in that moment, she had a dilemma. She, she could kill me or kiss me. I'm happy to report she chose the latter. And I'm happy to say grace feels pretty good. And you say, how did she do that? I don't understand how she... I mean, Keith, if I were your wife, I would have... You know, how, would she, how did she do that? Here's a better question. How does God do it? How is it that God is able to offer me grace when I don't deserve it? How does God offer me grace without endorsing my sin? That's the real question. How does God do it? You see, since the Garden of Eden, God has declared in His Word that the wages of sin is exactly. And then as if you were to think, well, that's an Old Testament Scripture, He says it again in the New Testament in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. See, there's no gray areas there. It's not like Jesus could find a loophole when he was talking to this lady and saying, oh, I found a loophole, I found a gray area, I think you're going to be okay. So the dilemma of grace is very real, and the dilemma of grace is this. How can God keep his word without turning his back on me? How can he satisfy his standards and still forgive my sins? I mean, is God going to lower his standards so that he, I can be forgiven? Is God going to somehow look the other way and pretend that I never did what he knows that I did? Would we even want a God who did that? Would we want a God that always lowers the standards or looks the other way or makes an exception? I don't think so. I think we would want a God who's always the same and who treats everyone the same way. And that's the dilemma that Jesus was facing that day as he looked at this lady who was embarrassed and humiliated and caught in a very sinful act. He stood there looking at the dilemma of grace. Second thing I want you to see in this story is the, the decision of grace. Jesus responded to these men and their accusations in a very unusual way. Look at verse 6. They were using this question as a trap and in order to have a basis for accusing him. And then look what happens. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is the only place in the Bible that states specifically that Jesus wrote something. Now, I'm not saying he didn't write anything. I'm just saying this is the only place in the Bible where it specifically says he wrote something. And people for years have asked, what did he write? And we don't know. We can only guess because the Scripture doesn't show us or say what he was writing. It just said that he, wrote, he was writing something on the ground. Now some, watch this, some were, have suggested that when he knelt down, they were asking, so, so what do you say about all this? That rather than answer them and he knelt down, some are suggesting that when he was writing on the ground, writing in the dirt, he was writing their sins. That's a possibility. Some say, no, he, he wasn't writing their specific sins. He, he was writing the Ten Commandments because, remember, it says those stone tablets were written by the finger of God. 
In the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets written by the finger of God. Some say that the finger of God, Jesus, was writing the Ten Commandments in the dirt. That's a possibility. I think there's another possibility, and it's only a guess, but the day before in that same area, the temple courts, Jesus had talked to the crowd about rejecting the living water, that he was the living water. And not everyone would accept him. That he was the living water. And he was explaining that and offering himself as the living water. Well, you don't have time to turn there, but write down this reference. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. And listen to what the rest of the verse says. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Uh, Hear that again. I'll just read the second half of it. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Maybe Jesus was writing that verse in the dust as he was trying to indicate you are forsaking the living water. Whatever it was that Jesus wrote, it really had its effect. Because look how the story unfolds beginning in verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, that is, even though he was bent down, riding in the dust, it did not stop them. They kept asking, well, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What do you say about this? What do you have to say? So they kept questioning him. He eventually, he straightened up, that is, he stood up, and he said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, if you don't know your Bible at all, you probably know that verse. If you've never read the Bible before, you probably have heard that verse. He who is without sin cast the first stone. That is a very common phrase. You you may not have even known that that came from the Bible. And so Jesus, after he's riding in the dust, he stands up and he looks at him and says, okay, here's what I have to say. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now tell me, read verse 8 and tell me what what he did in verse 8. Yeah, watch this. It says in verse 8, again, he stooped down and he started writing on the ground again. And this is where it gets dramatic. As he stooped down, not looking at them, but writing on the ground, it says in verse 9, at, those, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. They had more sin in their lives. They've lived longer, done more. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. I've underlined these words in my Bible. Only Jesus was left. What did he, what did he say to the crowd? He said, listen, you that are, that are without sin, you cast the first stone. And as he's riding on the ground, he hears a thump, thump, thump. People dropping their rocks and walking away. And he's riding on the ground, thump, thump, thump. People dropping their rocks and walking away. And I love this phrase. Only Jesus was left. All the other sinners had to walk away, but only Jesus was without sin. Jesus was the only one who didn't have to walk away that day. Because He was without sin. 
Only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Hey, let me tell you something. He knew exactly where they were. I think he looked at her with a broad, warm smile. Woman, where are they? All those guys that were harassing you, all those guys that, that were shaming you, those guys that were humiliating you, those guys that seemed so righteous, those guys that kept pointing at you and your sin, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. No one, sir. Then he said these words, neither do I condemn you. Holiness demanded that her sin be punished. Mercy compelled that the sinner be loved. So how do you do both? Jesus did both because there is this thing called grace. You see, we've got to interpret this event by the context of when it, when it occurred. It wasn't very long after this that Jesus was going to the cross. And I really believe what was happening here is that Jesus was not being easy on sin when He said, I don't condemn you. It's not that Jesus was taking her sin lightly and said, well, it's okay, just you know, try to do better next time. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that Jesus placed the cross between this woman and her sin. He knew that He would one day, not too long from now, that He would be going to the cross. That He would be dying for her sin. And as He looked at her, this sinner, Jesus understood and He realized and He wanted her to understand that she's loved by God. And He said, neither do I condemn you. Forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. Jesus, looking at this woman, put the cross between her and her sin. Make no mistake about it, this lady was guilty. She was caught in the very act. But make no mistake about it, the one who was born of a virgin, the one who lived a sinless, perfect life, was going to the cross to pay for the penalty of all our sins and to pay for the penalty of this woman's sin. That's why he could say, neither do I condemn you. He wasn't being easy on sin. He wasn't taking her sin lightly. He knew that he was about to take her sin on the cross. You know, we know John 3.16. We quote John 3.16. Sometimes we need to quote John 3.17. 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. 17 says, God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through Him to save the world. That's why Jesus could say to her, Neither do I condemn you. You see, the decision of grace is still being offered today. And as the hymn writer said many years ago, it really is amazing, isn't it? The decision of grace. If you are living in sin this day, this woman is proof that God does not turn His back on you. This woman is proof that He won't turn you down as too sinful. This woman is proof that God wants to offer you the same grace that He offered her. And here's how He does it. He does not compromise and condone your sin. 
No, instead, the wages of sin is still death. But rather than dismiss your sin, He assumes it on the cross. And He's able to offer you forgiveness, not condemnation, because He assumed your sin on the cross. And He can take away the sins of the past. And He can give you hope for the future. That's the decision of grace. Before we close, we have to talk about for a moment the demands of grace. Some people misunderstand grace as an excuse for sin, that, uh, that grace is seen as a reason to do good or do bad rather than a reason to do good. That if I can get God's grace, I can just live any way I want to, do whatever I need to, whatever I, I can just go live it up because I can ask for forgiveness tomorrow. You don't understand grace if that's your perspective. Look at the story. Verse 11. Neither, <clears throat> then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. Watch this. Go now and leave your life of sin. Two words that I have to call to your attention before we leave here today. And the first word is that word, leave. The demand is very clear. Jesus didn't say, lady, it's alright, don't worry about it. I hate that they treated you that way. That's not what He said. Jesus said, it's all wrong and you need to leave it. I don't condemn you. But grace demands two things. First of all, it demands change. You need to leave this life of sin Grace demands change. So I don't condemn you, but now it's time for you to leave this life of sin. After you have been forgiven, you have to change the way that you think. You have to change the way that you live. You have to change the places you go to. You have to change the people you hang out with. You have to change the things about you that caused you to get into this mess. Neither do I condemn you, but grace demands a change. You don't keep living in sin. You leave it. And then the second word, grace demands that we see our actions as God sees them. Jesus said, go now and leave, watch this, leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't talk about a mistake. He didn't talk about a bad decision. He bluntly referred to her life of sin. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus did not die for our mistakes. He died for our sin. Jesus did not forgive a bad decision. Jesus forgave our sins. Grace demands that we take our sins seriously and do our best to live differently. But please, 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 please get this. Jesus didn't say, go and sin no more and then I'll forgive you. Jesus said, I forgive you, now go and sin no more. You see, that's grace. You, somebody missed that. He didn't say, go and sin no more, then I will forgive you. Go clean up your life, clean up your act, stop living this way. When you get right, come back, and then I'll forgive you. That's not what he said. It's not go and sin no more, then I'll forgive you. He says, I forgive you. Now go sin no more. Leave your life of sin. I think that's where 
the story interacts with our lives, intersects with our lives. There is nothing that you have done or are doing that God won't forgive. His grace is real. His grace is available. And you can be caught in the very act of sin like this lady was. And His grace is going to be available. But after you've experienced grace and forgiveness, it's time to leave what you've been doing and go sin no more with His help. As we look at this story, I want you to think about this as we get ready to to leave here. She came to the temple that day guilty, called in the very act, and she left forgiven. Imagine what that must have felt like to be dragged into the temple courts, guilty, embarrassed, and shamed, but walking out of the temple courts, forgiven, clean. But guess who else left the temple courts that day? The men who came so self-righteously, dragging her to the temple. When they left that day, they did not leave self-righteously. They left convicted of their sin. Everybody, watch this, everybody who left the temple court, everybody in this story who left the temple courts that day left with a guilty conscience except this woman who was guilty. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. How does God do that? How does God forgive my sin and offer me what I don't deserve? Because there was a cross that Jesus died on. And every sin that you're now committing, or every sin that you have committed, or every sin that you will commit, He was dying for that sin. He assumed your sin so that He could assume your punishment. And because He assumed your sin and assumed your punishment, He can offer you forgiveness. And by the way, listen to me, He's the only one who can offer you forgiveness. Only the sinless one who died for sinners can forgive sin. And today he says, I offer you grace. I offer you grace. Pray with me about that. Heads bowed and eyes closed. The good news for you today is you may have come in guilty, but you can leave forgiven. You really can. This is not just a story to read. It is a story you can live. Your sin may be be different from hers, but it is still a sin that God will forgive. It is still a sin that God will show mercy. You can still experience God's grace. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You may have come in guilty, 
but you can leave forgiven. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you that your grace looks beyond our faults and you see our need. And I pray for anyone here today that they've really identified with this story because of something last night or something last week and the guilt is so real, the guilt is so heavy. I pray that they will turn to you, the Lord Jesus, confess their sin, not confess their bad decision, but confess their sin. And I pray that you would extend to them your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And then I pray that you would empower them to go and sin no more. To leave those things behind so that they can walk with you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.